a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored how the massive increase in the availability of pornography is affecting our behaviour, relationships and wellbeing. Our first guest, Dr. Jimmy McKibben, is a PhD and University of Melbourne Research Fellow who has explored harmful sexual behaviour and child sexual exploitation. We were then joined by our second guest, Dr. Nikki Goldstein, sexologist, relationship expert, author and host of Podcast One's Sex and Life. Dr. Gemma McKibben came to research pornography through her work as a social worker and family violence researcher. Her research has opened up a conversation about the harmful association between watching porn prematurely and a propensity to perpetrate and experience sexual violence. Gemma's research has uncovered disturbing associations between porn consumption, gender-based violence and the exploitation of young people. Her work has also explored the unintended consequences of the mainstreaming of porn and quasi-pornographic content. We're lucky enough to be joined today by Dr. Gemma McKibben. Gemma, welcome. Thanks so much, May. We're here today to explore a topic which is fascinating. Is the mainstreaming of porn damaging behaviour? Gemma, I thought I'd ask first up how you came or what your journey has been as a researcher to arrive at researching this topic. Mm, thank you. Yes, yeah, so look, I suppose... Um, I became interested in this topic through um, my PhD research, which was about um, preventing harmful sexual behaviour carried out by children and young people. And so I sort of had a background in delivering services to to women um, uh, around, particularly around domestic and family violence. And out of that um, work, uh, it became clear that there was, um, you know, something that we now call harmful sexual behaviour carried out by children and young people. And it's a bit like adolescent family violence in the home. So I decided to uh, do a PhD um, around how we could go about preventing this kind of behaviour. And that was with Professor Cathy Humphreys at the University of Melbourne, which is where, where I, I still am now. And really what I did in that piece of work was talk to young people who had been sexually abusive. And we think that about um, half of all child sexual abuse is carried out by other children and young people, not by adults. Can you so, unpack that for us? Sure. What, what does that mean, harmful yeah, sexual yeah. behaviour? What does that actually yeah. mean in so that peer group? It, um, in, it can mean... I mean, there's a a whole kind of spectrum of behaviours. Basically, children and young people um, are sexual beings right from, you know, when they're born. There's a very normal um, developmental path around their sexuality. 
And what um, when we talk about harmful sexual behaviours, it's when that pathway, um, you know, digresses and things go wrong. So a, a child um, might uh, sexually abuse another child and that might be... Um, getting them to, um, you know, perform acts of, you know, sexual acts on them. Uh, for example, sometimes in schools you see things like, you know, grade twos in the toilets. One grade two is asking another grade two to um, to perform oral sex on, on him. So that's what we call harmful sexual behaviour. And, and um, you know, at a, another end, you might have a 14-year-old boy who um, is watching a lot of pornography and um, is then acting out that pornography on his little sister, say. So that's what we, we mean by harmful sexual behaviour. So, so really what happened um, out of that research is um, I realised that one of the things that was really triggering this harmful sexual behaviour amongst young people was, was pornography. And, um, and it was in a, in, a, in a couple of different ways. And one, that there is a, a culture amongst young people um, of watching pornography. So we're seeing um, 11-year-olds, for example, who have the Pornhub app downloaded on their phones. So they're watching pornography at school, between uh, classes. They're showing each other pornography and it spreads like wildfire. It's really, um, it's very contagious the way um, porn viewing, I think, happens um, amongst children and young people. So, so there's a culture of viewing porn, which is very, very troubling. And there, um, with a couple of the kids who were in my PhD study, there was also a family culture of viewing porn together, which um, is quite, you know, um, unusual. But yeah, could you unpack <laughs> that? There's a few expressions here in the recording yeah. studio. What do you mean by a family culture of viewing porn? So, so for one of the boys, um, you know, he had been introduced to porn by his father. And the father and son, you know, almost as a, as a manly thing to do together, the father and son would watch pornography together. So it was very normalised in, in the family. What's that actually about, though? Can we just digress for a minute? Is that common? Is I that, would I mean, say that was, that's fairly uncommon, but it was, it was a case that particularly stood out to me. I think it's much more common that there's a kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, porn-watching culture than, you know, father-to-son. Um, but this was, a, this was a very serious sort of um, scenario for, for this boy who, who um, you know, was living with that, yeah. What, what are the implications of that kind of family viewing? Well... I mean, that kind of family viewing, it would just be one kind of factor, I suppose, that, that leads a child or young person towards, um, you know, carrying out harmful sexual behaviour is what, what I would say, yeah. Just on that point, I think one of the things that um, I know, sort of having had a technology background, is that the industry of pornography has actually driven much of the innovation in internet bandwidth, surround sound, graphics, 
to me, I'm curious as to what the actual prevalence is today, given we know that technology is where it's at. Mm. What does that mean about the prevalence or the consumption of porn in a country like Australia or, you know, mm. any other mm. developed nation? Well, I think that, you know, from what I understand from the current studies that, you know, 50 to 70% of adult men regularly consume porn. We know that um, in the US, 90% of college students, so that would be, they'd be around 18 years old, um, uh, male college students um, have been exposed to porn or con- and consume porn and about 60% of girls. Um, we know that the first age of porn exposure or consumption is becoming much lower. I don't know, you know, and I think, you know, we're talking around under 10, um, that, that, you know, many kids uh, are being exposed. Yeah. Either accidentally or through peers um, or through curiosity. All you have to do is type in, you know, boobs and you come up with porn. Yeah. So (coughs) so, so any child with an access access to a computer and a, um, I guess the internet is potentially being exposed to porn. It's very different to the days of um, the old Playboy mag mm. kicking around the, the um, schoolyard. So going back to understanding what the mainstream exposure to porn is doing, what other insights have come from your PhD work and your work since? So I suppose, um, you know, I think that one of the things we're seeing you know, one of the most concerning things, I think, and can I just qualify that, you know, I, I take a very sort of sex positive view and I don't think that there's anything, you know, morally, uh, you know, wrong with erotica, particularly when it represents um, consensual um, sex between um, adults. That's I, I just sort of want to make that clear. But I yeah. think there is something um, really problematic with what is happening with pornography in our culture. And one of the most problematic things is that we're seeing a link between um, consuming, regularly consuming pornography and carrying out acts of sexual aggression. So we actually now have very strong meta-analytical evidence that there is a link between consuming porn regularly and being more likely to be, to carry out an act of sexual aggression against someone. Is that gendered information? No, it's actually that study um, that is consistent for both men and women and for girls and boys. So it's fascinating. consistent across ages and genders, yep. What do you think underpins that phenomenon? Is it the normalisation of, I guess, dominating someone else or mm. forcing something? Well, I think that um, certainly if you talk to Marie Crabb, who's a, um, you know, pornography sort of educator, and there's a, a website called It's Time We Talked, which is for young people around pornography. And certainly on that website, it suggests that 88% of uh, mainstream sort of or popular pornography represents um, violence against women and girls. So I think 
that there there is absolutely a link between um, you know the the aggression that is often the slapping or the you know pinning down or whatever it is that's happening in that scene that there is something that is happening that is um, impacting and changing our behaviours. Well, tell us about the um, the meta-analysis because I know there are many on the other side that would say, well, you, you know, there's good and bad in, in every sort of free, every element of free choice and people can choose to use that same material for good. But mm. what does the meta-analysis mm. tell us? What, how was that study set up and produced, or multiple studies, obviously. Well, it doesn't, I mean, I think the important thing about the study is not to sort of overstate it, and it, it by no means um, suggests that all people who use porn carry out, you know, acts of sexual aggression. There's, it doesn't mean that at all. So, I mean, it was a study um, carried out on sort of 22 papers across seven different countries, So it's, and it was pooling the data um, uh, and 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 that's sort of the strongest uh, form of evidence that that we can have um, methodologically speaking. What what the study says is that individuals who consume pornography more frequently are more likely to hold attitudes conducive conducive to sexual aggression and engage in actual acts of sexual aggression than individuals who do not consume pornography or who consume pornography less frequently. So there's there's a link, um, but it it doesn't mean that everyone who uses pornography is a sexual abuser. From your perspective and everything you've read, is there a safe age, stage, or dose of porn? Mm. Like 10 is obviously crazy. That's too young. I mean, I think that we don't, you know, if we think about driving, for example, we don't um, give kids cars and keys to cars and expect them to go out and, and drive cars before they're, you know, 16, 17, 18. Um, whereas, you know, we allow them access to this kind of content, you know, whether we know we're doing it or not, and often we don't know. Mm. Um, so I actually would be in favour of really restricting children's and young people's access to pornography until they are 18. And how we do that, I think, yeah, I, I don't know yet. Yeah. But I don't think it's okay for, I think it's a, as I said, I think it's a children, a children's rights issue. I don't think that we're doing them any favours by exposing them to pornography. On the subject of, say, dose, there are obviously people with unfettered access to mobile phones. Well, most of us are. Mm. Um, is there a healthy level of porn consumption? How can, is there a way to have a healthy adult relationship to pornography? Uh, look, I'm sure that there is, and I think, um, you know, I'm sure that some couples use, you know, pornography or, uh, you know, more broadly speaking, erotica in, in their sex lives. And I think, you know, maybe um, I think for me, you know, relationships need to kind of follow a, a care model and the care model is um, consent. There needs to be consent. Mm. There needs to be age appropriateness. There needs to be respect and there needs to be equality. And if you're seeing those things represented in porn, terrific. 
um, or if you're able to use porn together or, or alone, you know, but, but having that kind of care model underpinning whatever sexual activity I think is important, you know, and mm. ultimately sex should be pleasurable and it should be pleasurable Absolutely. for, <laughs> for everyone so involved. Hoping, yes. <laughs> but look, I might be revealing my naivety here or lack of exposure. Is there such a thing as pornography which represents an equal relationship that is respectful whereby there is consent and it's also age appropriate? Yeah. Look, I I think there probably is some of that. But as I said, you know, what we know is that about 88% of pornography that, that is regularly viewed doesn't um, have have any of those elements. So uh, I think... So it's derogatory, it's yeah. asymmetrical, yeah. there's often no consent. It's, yeah, very often consent is not ever seen as negotiated, nor is there sort of, um, you know, condom use or negotiated, yeah. that kind of thing. But there is a kind of movement of what we call feminist porn, and I think I, I don't know a huge amount about it, but there there is an attempt to produce um, pornography in a way that represents those, you know, four elements that I talked about. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about it, we've, I mean, it's very clear that there is a real risk of, I guess, perpetrating harm if you consume a lot of porn and you're, I would assume, desensitised. Is there any insight into whether or not that porn is harmful to the person that's using it mm. on a psychological or physical level? Well, certainly... I think that we know for children, young people who are, who are consuming porn, that there's an impact on um, on the way they think about themselves. So, because a lot of porn sort of represents that, you know, the, the male being that sort of having that toxic masculinity where he has to somehow conquer the woman or the girl or a number of girls, depending on, you know, how many people yeah. are involved in this sex act. And and the girl or the woman is, you know, it, it becomes a complete object of, you know, male sexual consumption. So if you take those kinds of feelings about um, yourself out into the real world, <laughs> life, you know, I think that that can be, uh, that is potentially damaging mm. um, because, you know, men need to be able to be... Um, masculine in ways that aren't, you know, conquering and um, abusive. And mm. women need to be much more than sexual objects. So... I yeah. hear you. I'm going to wrap mm. up on, a, on a, a question that I've thought about, which is around, I guess, the um, pornification of our culture. Mm. When you flick on the television and you see shows, we'll say the Kardashians, for example, do you feel that we are swimming in a soup of kind of semi-pornographic or quasi-pornographic or super-sexualised mm. people? Yes, yes, I do. And and I think that um, the use of the term pornification is, is a very good one. And I think that um, certainly if you look at, at music videos, um, you know, you, you, it, it's like uh, porn but without the perhaps all of the nudity, but it represents in, a, in, in ways the same kind of set of values that, that pornography has. So w- we are living in a time um, where we need to start thinking about what we want to do about this pornification 
and how we, you know, do we really want our children growing up in this kind of culture? I don't think we want a repressive culture where, you know, we can't express our sexuality, um, but we need to think about quite carefully about how we want our kids to to grow up and what influence our culture um, is having on them. And we certainly need to be holding government, the porn industry and the tech giants to account for their role in protecting our kids. And us. And us, yeah. Gemma, thank you so much for making the time to come and speak to us. Thanks so much. What struck me about Gemma's work and perspective was not a denial about the potential benefits of erotica, rather the widespread and uncontrolled impact that mainstreaming is having. She pointed out how extensively porn was being accessed, sometimes unintentionally, by young people and children. She also talked about the disturbing phenomenon of family porn watching and the relationship between seeing this and harmfully acting out things which have been learned online. So I was left to ask, what is a normal sexual initiation when porn is on demand and everywhere? Are parents and the public really aware of how negative porn can be? And now that it's out there, could we get the genie back in the bottle if we wanted to? But first, let's hear from Dr Nikki Goldstein. Nikki holds a bachelor's degree in psychology a postgraduate diploma in counselling, and a doctorate in human sexuality. Prior to receiving her doctorate, Nikki worked as a family mediator, assisting couples through the process of divorce and separation. Her first book, Single But Dating, was published in 2015. Dr Nikki Goldstein, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Thanks for having me. Well, we're here today unpacking a topic which I'm sure everyone has spoken about at some point or another, which is pornography. And it's topical, not least of which, because it's kind of everywhere, people might say. What's your view on pornography or how have you come to have one? Well, it it is one of the topics I think that we are so quick to blame for all the wrongdoings in our our bedrooms and relationships with youth. Um, But because we're so fearful of it, we don't actually stop to understand it. So from my perspective, if I was going to comment about porn, I really wanted to make sure that I understood the industry and that I went and researched it. So it sounds horrible to say, but I got my hands dirty and I've been on porn sets and I've interviewed porn stars and directors and producers and I've been at the conferences so that when we can have these conversations around, is it harming us? You know, what can we learn from it? How do we have a healthy relationship with it? That I could speak from fact, not from maybe some research that someone has done and drawn a conclusion from. So perhaps let's set the scene a bit. Many people have probably had an experience of porn, you know, passed on or recommended or through friends. But taking a global snapshot from your expert perspective, what's happening in the porn industry? Where has it come from and where's it going? Well, really what we're seeing is a trend to be popular. So people will have a look at what downloads are being done, what kind of genres people are um, engaging in, and they want to produce more of that content. So one of the myths out there is that we do have this trend where we're going more and more kinkier and we're engaging in acts in pornography that are so extreme 
the average person is not actually able to copy that and they're trying to and we're looking at that as our basis of normality. Now, there's some fact and fiction in that. It is, of course, true because it's just like a Hollywood film. We want to see stunts that are crazier and more out there. You know, the technology is getting better. The same thing with porn. They're working out how to do different things and how to add different elements into it. But it's only one sector of it. We're seeing trends um, with things like docuporn. People are actually wanting intimacy. They're wanting to see what looks like a couple. They want to see not just the sex, but maybe some of the things around it. They want to see different body types. They want to see minority groups represented. So even though we do have this trend that is going towards this unrealistic expectation for what the average person can even physically do in the bedroom, we're also seeing a trend whereby people have this ability to speak up by downloading and by clicking and by jumping into forums People will listen to that and we are seeing pornography that is more real, um, you know, more diversity. So it's a fantastic thing that we're getting that, but nobody wants to speak positively about porn. Wouldn't you say, though, that we're overall, so in addition to being consuming more diverse porn, are we consuming more porn as a society? Well, I would guess to say that we are. The problem is that we don't have the um, the ability to measure data like we do now. So I don't think we can say we are consuming it more or less. I would assume that we are because it's so easily accessible. And I think that's a little bit of the problem with pornography these days is that you can access it so easy for free. You don't have to buy a magazine. You don't have to buy a DVD. You don't even have to have a membership on a website. So we are seeing people have an unhealthy relationship with porn where you know, and I don't like using the word addiction because, you know, we can't really define what a porn addiction is, but an unhealthy behaviour with porn whereby they're consuming so much of it that they're disconnecting from their partners or they're not able to establish a relationship because they're looking at these people in these films and movies as the ideal and they're even creating intimacy with them. Um, also, it's setting up unrealistic expectations for what they should be achieving in the bedroom. Porn is like a Hollywood movie and we shouldn't be emulating what is always done. So if you overconsume porn, your level of what you want to do and what you think is attainable becomes unrealistic. So we are seeing a lot of sexual dysfunction coming from that overuse where people are not able to become sexually satisfied, they're not able to maintain erections. And I think the biggest thing with that is that we can't just solely blame it on porn, but we do have to look at you know, our lack of sex education, even for adults, but also the fact that we are so capable of consuming it at any hour of the day. It's just even like with social media, you know, what is doing, what is that doing to our brains? I think we've got to have a look at the same thing as content and something that's distracting us from everyday life. What is that also doing to us? So it sounds like what you're advocating for is some kind of a, a gate on porn consumption. I mean, I heard an anecdote the other day that someone was watching porn on their mobile in the GPS holster while driving. And that doesn't surprise me. Now, I, I don't think we need necessarily a gateway, but I think we need more conversations and education about pornography and how to consume it in a healthy manner. And that's what we don't hear. I think 
for from a media perspective, we tend to like to sensationalise things and look at the crazy things that happen in porn and those stereotypical cases of someone that ends up in the industry because they've had a bad upbringing or something's happened to them. Um, we don't like to stop and say, hey, it can be a really good thing if used correctly. I really think the solution is more conversations, more edu- education as we get older around how do we consume it and what are some of the things that we need to look out for. Because if you think about what we tell kids and teenagers, it's constantly anti-porn. You know, we're putting on these um, uh, net doctors and we're trying our hardest to protect them because their brains can't understand that that is fake and they think that that is real and that is a real danger for children and teens that are developing. But never at a point do we say to them, hey, it can be a really fun thing. It's sexy entertainment and it's great to be able to watch it on your own. Sometimes it's great to be able to watch it with a partner. This is how you do it safely. And that's the problem is we spend so much of our time on that fear-based education. So teenagers become adults and never at a point do we have the opportunity to stop and say, okay, I get that you're going to engage in in watching porn and that's completely fine and normal and very positive for an adult. But he's how to do it in a way that's safe. Here's some things to look out for that, you know, where it might be getting out of control. And we also might need to have a conversation around what is realistic expectations from watching that porn as to what you want in your own sex life. One of the sticky parts of what you're saying is we need to teach people how to have a relationship with porn. And you could you could replace that with potato chips. I mean, we've got junk food everywhere and people say, yes, but if consumed in moderation, it's not harmful to you. Isn't the issue that porn is everywhere, that there is pornification of our culture? It's on our Instagram feed. It's on Facebook. It's it's in subtle ways creeping in through every form of media. I have more of an issue with Instagram feeling like porn than porn. And I think, you know, that is more going into the sexualization of society. If you were looking at porn and you were wanting to see photos of women in very, you know, skimpy outfits and G-strings and, you know, all sorts of things, you're looking at porn. What I think is very confusing is when you jump onto social media and you see people that resemble porn stars, but they're saying, this is okay, this is in the mainstream. And this is where we're starting to get into that debate around, you know, we, we never want to slut shame somebody, but has the norm become so sexy because we're seeing that trend? You know, if you have a look at the Instagram accounts of some of the most famous porn stars, they look less sexy in my mind than some influencers because they're trying to be very careful about not to show things that will get these accounts suspended. So they already have a fan base and they obviously want to share parts of their life and promote various things to their fan base, but they cover nipples and they wear clothing where they're not going to get reported for, you know, breaking community standards. But then on the other hand, you'll see influencers post all the time being in bikinis and G-strings and flaunting their bodies, which yes, is their choice, but I think it gets very confusing for especially a younger generation to go, well, is that porn and, and this is not? You know, this is where it gets the lines overlap. Well, is it porn? And I, I agree with you because it's not that uncommon to see someone in a bikini or with a top off and kind of talking about fitness inspiration or their latest 
green smoothie and you're like, well, is this about my health or your body? And I suppose this is the problem too these days when you know we hear about things being someone's choice and especially we hear the word you know feminism and female empowerment, which I am completely in support of, but I challenge my choices and I think that's what we need to be doing is that is it a choice to post that photo or is it a trend that you're not aware that you're becoming a part of and your choice is influenced by the society that you live in? Now, whether that influence comes from porn or comes from the Kardashians, I'm not sure. But we have always had pornography and we have always had women naked and in very skimpy outfits. I just think the lingerie and outfits are getting better now. So why now are we seeing such an influence of this encouragement for women to be sexier? Is it advertising? Is it the fact that we have advertising that says sex sells? You know, everything online these days, everything that you see on a mag- in a magazine on TV, it's a product that seems to make someone prettier and sexier. We don't see women that are buttoned up. You know, we see them that are in, in a sexy kind of way. Is that what is influencing us or is it porn? But if we've always had porn, can we argue that porn is sexualizing our society? Well, it's got to be a two-way relationship because people don't make content which doesn't get looked at, generally speaking. They won't continue to do it if it's not getting looked at. So the question is, you know, can we regulate ourselves or do we somehow need to impose regulations, even if they're cultural regulations? What is a healthy relationship with porn if it's always been around? So this is where it becomes really difficult because I don't believe that we should be putting regulations on porn specifically. I do um, believe when it comes to age restrictions, that's something that's really important. But beyond that, I don't know where we should because even when we have a look at um, various laws about importing pornography, so these days when you come into Australia and on your customs card, it will have, you know, are you bringing in cigarettes, are you bringing this, and then there's illegal pornography. So I asked a politician once um, who was the head of the Australian Sex Party, well, what is illegal pornography? And they said things like if it's seen to be aggressive or even if the woman is of age, so over the age of 18 is obviously when you can be a performer, but she looks like she's younger. So if she has smaller breasts, if she's in a schoolgirl's outfit, now those things are not set in stone. What you might perceive as looking underage is very different to what I might perceive as looking underage or what you might perceive as aggressive is different to what I perceive as aggressive. So how can we possibly monitor that? And this is the problem with putting this legislation on porn. But then we have a look at, well, what is this healthy relationship with porn? What a healthy relationship is for me could be completely different for you. So same thing with our sex lives. When people say to me all the time, how many times should we be having sex a week? Well, that's completely different for the individual. So it's really about having these wider conversations around what kind of things are harmful and especially this idea of porn not being real. If you speak to a porn star about their own sex life behind closed doors, I'll never forget the first person that said to me, it would be really boring to watch. So if if we were to watch what they were doing. So isn't it ironic that what they're obviously doing at home is more intimate, connected, in their words, boring to watch from the outside. But yet for so many of us in our own bedrooms, we're trying to emulate 
what they do that is fake. Yeah. Wouldn't you say, though, that that kind of, I guess, tendency for people to pick something up and try and take it home, what's actually going on there when they're trying to emulate something that the porn star doesn't even do at home? Because we don't, we don't have enough sex education in general. So, you know, we're all fearful that we're doing something wrong in the bedroom. You know, we're still taught that talking about sex is taboo. Even though we do do it, it's done to a certain point. So when we access pornography and we think, oh, that looks really good, you know, we're all looking for the holy grail of reaching this pleasure point and improving things in the bedroom and spicing things up. So it is only natural that we're going to see something like that and want to copy it because we're going to wonder, is that move, is that thing that they're doing going to increase the pleasure in what we're doing? But we need to be having more of those conversations around you know, what is done behind the scenes. I mean, you know, anal sex. I get absolutely mortified when I see these articles after articles about the anal injuries of young women. So, you know, there was something recently um, even saying that there was an increase in stoma bags. Um, what really worries me is that we're having a, a younger generation that is obviously looking at anal sex and what they do and thinking that that's what they should do and not aware of the risks or how things are prepared. I mean, there's sometimes days that go into preparing a woman who's about to shoot an anal scene. So even that fact, isolated alone, if we were able to say to teenagers, okay, this is what she actually does, Um, you know, this is the preparation that's involved, if you want to explore in that particular act, here's what you need to know and need to do, then will we be seeing less of these cases of young women with anal injuries because they're trying to copy porn? Well, here's the thing here that I'm sort of left asking. In the same way that, you know, computer games are often, well, they they are now empirically associated with more violent behaviour, couldn't we say that perhaps young people who are just at the dawn of their sex life shouldn't be watching hardcore porn? I don't think they should be watching hardcore porn, but that doesn't account for every type of porn that's out there. And I think that's one of the myths about the industry in general is that you, know, you can find porn, um, you know, for example, there's one porn company where um, the girls don't wear makeup and they don't have um, you know, any type of enhancements, like it's made to be very natural and real. Um, there's pornography out there that's marketed as, you know, couples. So there's more romance and intimacy involved. There's pornography out there that's marketed as to be real. You know, we have cam sites now where people just switch on from the comfort of their home and can see someone doing something. So, you know, kids will access porn whether we like it or not because they're curious. You know, that is the number one reason why they're looking. People think that it's something more sinister the first thing that they're thinking of is I'm curious about sex. I hear about this thing. I want to see what it's all about. I know I can find it online. I think the problem is hardcore pornography. And when we look at this trend of things getting kinkier and kinkier and crazier and crazier, they don't have that understanding to be able to separate their own lives from that and go, okay, that's like a Hollywood movie and that's something that I can't do. And that's actually not even real anyway. That person's probably not doing what you think that they're doing. Um, you know, I, I hate to say that we should be encouraging kids to look at a different type of porn because I don't want to encourage children to look at porn in general. But I do believe that if we can restrict them from hardcore pornography, that would help with this issue that we're seeing of unrealistic expectations when they start to become sexual. 
Okay, so we sort of agree that people can develop unrealistic expectations in a monkey-see, monkey-do kind of way. 100%. And even adults. This is not just for children. This is adults as well. Most, um, most adults these days will watch pornography and on some level think, should I do that? Can I do that? Is that something that's going to help me? I don't think that we're immune to it. I just think that as adults, we tend to have more conversations around porn. Um, we have access to you know, investigate the industry a bit more. When you're a teenager, you don't have that cognitive ability to be able to decipher that like an adult does. So looking at this, I guess, from the flip side, if the end game is a rich and satisfying intimate life, how can porn actually help an individual or a couple? Well, I think, first of all, it's a real benefit for a lot of people to feel turned on by watching it. It's exciting. Um, you know, I I personally love porn parodies. I think they're, they're hilarious. And we see, you know, nothing is safe in a porn parody. Every favourite movie, show you have, they've created porn from it. It doesn't have to be so pizza delivery guy rocking up to the door with two women waiting on the other side. You can have a lot of fun watching porn in a relationship or even on your own. Um, it's a great way sometimes to explore sexuality. So maybe you're thinking about um, a particular act or maybe it's about, you know, a different gender and you think, I just want to watch porn and see if that excites me and if that's something that I want to explore further. When we do see the more realistic side of pornography, and this is where the danger comes as to working out what is realistic and what isn't, it can be a great way to give us some ideas. We might see something and go, oh, that actually really excites me. I do want to try that at home. The problem is, is that where we draw that line as to what is real and what isn't. So I don't think, you know, and these are the conversations we don't have about the fact that porn can be healthy for us in terms of our sex life. But there is that invisible line. And the problem is, is that we might not know where that line is. It sounds like this conversation needs to turn into 10 real life conversations for everyone else <laughs> listening in. Nikki, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and open this Pandora's box. And if anyone wants to connect, they can find you at Dr. Nikki Goldstein or drnikki.com.au. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Considering the vantage points of both guests, there's no controversy around the value of a vibrant, intimate life nor around the possibility of some porn supporting some people and keeping the spark alive. However, there's an uncomfortable underbelly of the mainstreaming of pornographic content. When we look at this as a whole of society level, the following becomes hard to ignore. Porn is dominated by women in their 20s portraying teenagers. Internationally, the consumption of porn was significantly associated with increases in verbal and physical aggression among males and females. Child porn is one of the fastest growing online businesses. 35% of all internet traffic is transmitting porn. That's more than Netflix, Twitter and Amazon combined. So I'm left to ask, would those engaged in the 5.5 trillion hours of porn watching prefer actual intimacy with a person, even if that was themselves? It's clear that the public health implications of porn mainstreaming are yet to be quantified. So it seems important we ask ourselves, what is the role of regulation? Given what we know now, are we ready to accept the consequences to ourselves and others for our online environment? As a community, are we owning the downstream effects of the pornification of everything? Thanks once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into 
Are contraceptives dangerous to women's health? Self-improvement versus self-harm in plastic surgery. Produce of circumstance. What should we really be eating? And energy medicine. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Grinberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. Hi, I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.